You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there are a lot of things about us that make us pretty unique. Each person here is wired with a particular personality, different preferences. Uh, We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. It's fascinating, actually, at times to just take time and sit down and to hear someone's story. We realize what different lives people live. We, we realize what different challenges people face. We realize the different approaches that people take to life. Now, this is probably seen most clearly when you visit someone's home. Um, for instance, you walk into someone's home and there's the shoe-off policy. And so we, this happened to us recently. We were invited to a neighbor's uh, for a dinner party and it was kind of a dress-up thing, and it was like, oh, yeah, by the way, you need to take your shoes off. And we realized, okay, well, I'm glad I don't have holes in my socks today. So, But we, we can get past this. We'll move on. And then we maybe mosey our way into the restroom and realize that they are the people that put the toilet paper with the toilet paper coming down the backside. <laughs> we realize we can overlook that as well. And then we venture into the kitchen and see them putting ketchup on eggs, and we're like, wait a minute, we're out of here, guys. This is just craziness. People are very, very different. And yet there is something about us that is universal, that's shared amongst all people. It transcends all of our differences, no matter who you are. And it is the desire for meaning and identity and purpose. That deep down need to ask really three big questions about ourselves. The what, the who, and the why of our existence. A young Soren Kierkegaard once said that the goal of life is to find the idea for which I can live and die. One could argue that you can't fully answer those questions, the what and the who and the why of your existence until you discover something not only worth living for, but worth dying for. Or as we'll see in Mark today, that thing discovers us. But let's begin with a problem. See, the problem that we particularly in the, in the Western world face is that we have so much to live with and yet at the same time so, much, so little to live for. We are inundated with things that leave us very little to show for it. Our schedules are filled with things that leave us bored at best and often empty. The average U.S. adult will spend three and a half hours mindlessly staring into their screens per day. So you add that up, that's about seven and a half weeks, endless time, seven and a half weeks, this year, staring mindlessly into our screens. We're no longer distracted. We are 
inundated. We carry these large burdens, long distances. We lay them down. We look at them and we realize that wasn't worth it. We allow things like burnout and exhaustion and overwhelm to determine what we say yes to and determine what we say no to. We find ourselves working here and investing our time over here and spending our money over there with very little conviction as to why. Why am I doing this? Why is my time being spent here? Why is my money being spent here? There are probably very few of us that wake up every single day with a clear vision for our lives and a clear conviction about our purpose. Our stories, by and large, are ones of aimlessness. But there are two words that can change this. In fact, these have been called the two words that changed the world forever. Two words that will flood your life with purpose and meaning. Two words that will turn your world upside down in the best sort of way. Jesus said, follow me. And four men's lives and eternities were changed forever. And that same meaningful call comes to us today with just as much beauty and just as much power calling us onto the path of following Jesus Christ. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to be a disciple. Now, before we get too far into this passage, what I want to do is I want to break out for just a moment and ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? We throw that term out there quite a bit. We're going to see that term in the Gospels. It's written into our mission statement that we exist to glorify God by making disciples. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, our sister church in Los Angeles, Reality LA, their pastor, Jeremy Treat, wrote a little book called Follow Me. And within this book, he defines discipleship in three ways. It means to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, and to become like Jesus. The call of discipleship is a call into nearness with someone. These words, follow me, are not really about where we're going so much as who we are with. In fact, there's an old religious saying, may you be covered in your rabbi's dust. And the idea was that you would walk so closely to the person that you're following that the dust of your teacher's shoes would be upon you. This is the picture of discipleship, that the dust of Christ is on us because we are so near to our master. The call of discipleship is also a call to learn from the one that we follow. In fact, that's what this word disciple means. Disciple means learner or pupil. In one sense, we are students. But don't think so much classroom setting. In fact, I think sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we isolate discipleship into the classroom. Think more like apprenticeship, on-the-job training. I know what it's like to be an apprentice. Uh, early in my life, I showed up on a construction site not even knowing how to hold and swing a hammer becoming an apprentice. And through the long and sometimes uh, very, very difficult process of being there for the very beginning, the foundation work, all the way to the very end, I learned a lifetime's worth of knowledge and experience, not just in my head, but the kind of experience that sunk down into my bones. Discipleship is the same. We, as we follow Jesus, as we're near, from Jesus, near to Jesus, as we apprentice, 
Jesus, we are learning to love and we are learning to serve and we are learning to obey like Jesus. Lastly, the call of discipleship is really about what we're becoming. As we stay close and we learn from the one that we follow, we become like him. The other day I was sitting in the, the waiting room with my youngest son, Levi, who I've never really thought looks a whole lot like me. And we're sitting there and I'm, I've got a book in my lap and I'm reading and I got my left leg crossed over my right and I've got my vans on or whatever. And I turn to my left and there is my son Levi with a book in his hand, his left leg crossed over his right with his little vans on. And I can guarantee there was no intentionality that day. I'm going to look like my dad. But there is something about spending time with someone over the, the, the long haul where we begin to resemble them. And this is really the spirit of discipleship, that shaping process of becoming like the one that we follow. And this is vital. This, this is vital for us to understand. This is key for us to understand in this process of discipleship because as Dallas Willard put it, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. Stop thinking it's what you do and don't do. It's what you become. That is what you take into eternity. Discipleship is about what we are becoming. Listen to the words of Jesus, verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you what? Become. So here's the question. What are you becoming? As we dive into this passage this morning, this is the question that we need to be pondering. What are you becoming? And what God intends for us to become really hinges on this call of Jesus. There are three things that I want to note about this call that we see in these four verses uh, to Simon and uh, his brother and James and his brother, the first of which is this, the call of Jesus is initiating. The call of Jesus is initiating. Now, typically, rabbis and sages in Jesus's time would not go out and choose an apprentice. This scene would be very, very different. A young learner who desired to excel in their studies would bring themselves and bring their resume and who they are and what they've accomplished to a rabbi or to a sage, and they would ask them, they would petition them in order to become an apprentice, in order to come under that person's leadership. But we see a very different picture here in Mark. To be called a disciple is not a matter of personal initiative. To be a disciple is not a matter of personal achievement. To be a disciple isn't even initially a matter of personal choice. To be called a disciple is a matter of God's grace. Why would I call it grace? Because Jesus doesn't wait for us to build our portfolio of achievements. Thanks be to God. Jesus does not wait for us to come to him and present ourselves to him in order for him to determine if we've got what it takes. We are not bringing ourselves to God and asking, are we a worthwhile investment? What the narrative of Mark shows us is that Jesus, in his grace, initiates. Jesus initiates relationship. Now, Mark records very little detail as um, about what's going on here. I've got a couple questions. Like, what are, what are the disciples thinking at this very moment? Or how about this? 
what did their goodbye look like? Was it theatrical, like throwing their nets, goodbye, daddy, you know, like we're out of here. What was it? Was it, you know what? Just, yes, just, but there's no, none of those details, just simply that they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. But Mark records a detail that he wants to be particularly clear because he actually repeats it in both scenes. It appears in both scenes. Verse 16, he saw Simon and Andrew, let's wait for it, coming. Okay, and then verse 19, again, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother. He saw Simon, and he saw James. He saw them. And listen, he sees you. He sees you. Before our eyes ever meet Jesus, his eyes of grace and love are upon us. Before we ever seek Jesus, Jesus first seeks us. In fact, the scriptures would tell us in 1 John, in this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. We see Jesus because he first saw us. We follow Jesus because he first sought us. Initiating grace. He saw them. Now, it's not that, just, that Jesus is, his eyes upon them like a, a college scout secretly sitting in the stands at a high school game, tracking stats, taking notes, waiting for that next up-and-coming rising star. These are unqualified unlearned men. In fact, as we read throughout Mark, we read throughout the Gospels, it becomes very, very clear that these are not qualified men. Jesus calls the least qualified individuals to follow him and graciously entrusts his mission of the kingdom to become fishers of men, to be those who gather to Christ. He chooses the least to participate in the great. Let me say that again. Jesus chooses the least to participate in the great. What qualifies us to participate in Jesus' mission is not our worthiness. We need to settle that right now. What qualifies us to participate in Jesus' mission is not our ingenuity. It's not our experience. It's not our education. It is nothing in and of ourselves. What qualifies us to participate in the mission of Jesus Christ is God's grace and grace alone. I need you guys with me this morning. What qualifies us is his grace. The second thing that we see from this passage is that the call of Jesus is transforming. The call of Jesus is transforming. I love the way that one commentator describes the scene. He says this, speaking of these four men, they have been caught in the nets of God's grace and it will transform their lives forever. Before they are fishers of men, they are caught in the transforming nets of God's grace. Now, something to notice about this story is the immediacy of their response. Notice that. Jesus says, follow me, and they're like, we're in. Jesus, who Mark gives us no indication of having gained any and built any report with these men, Mark records no prior experience, no prior, uh, you know, meeting. Here he just simply shows up. He says, follow me. 
What happens, verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. What is going on here? What is going on here? How does something like this happen? You see, not only is Jesus revealing his initiating grace, what Jesus is revealing right now is his effectual grace. His effectual grace. A grace that is irresistible in power that summons with the very authority of heaven above. With two simple words, follow me. Jesus has the power to change the disposition of their hearts and bring these common fishermen to an active faith. Not just believing intellectually, not just intellectual assent, willing to leave it all and follow Jesus based on two words, follow me. We can't forget who's speaking right now. This isn't just some common rabbi. This isn't just some common teacher. This isn't just some prophet. Hebrews 1 describes Jesus like this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So that same voice that spoke the world into existence, let there be light and there's light, that same voice that sustains the cosmos is at work here. In John's gospel, it gets a little bit personal. We read about this family that Jesus befriends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what John tells us is Lazarus gets very, very sick. And so his concerned sisters send word to Jesus, knowing that he has the power to heal, seeing it done before, calling Jesus, this is your friend. He is very sick. Come back so that you may heal him. But Jesus, intending to reveal something bigger, not less, but bigger than healing a sick man, he does a strange thing. He purposely lingers. He doesn't initially respond. He lingers, in in fact, until it's too late and Lazarus dies. So when Jesus arrives, when he finally comes days later, no one understands why Jesus would do that. Like so many things in our life, they're, they're thinking like, Why, Jesus? You could have changed this. You could have just spoken the word and he would be healed. Why would he wait when he could have done something? Why would he come now when it was far too late? And so Jesus comes to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried for days, and he he does this strange thing. He says, all right, now roll away the stone. Take away the stone. And Lazarus' sister and everyone begin to, uh, to object. Like, Jesus, I don't know if you know how this, this thing works, but he is dead. In fact, he's been dead for four days. It is bound to reek in there. He's too far gone. She's too far gone. This is too far gone. So Jesus speaks to his father, and it tells us this. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Listen to the simplicity here. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. So that same commanding voice that called the world into existence, let there be light and there's light. And that same commanding voice that powerfully raised a dead man to life by simply saying, Lazarus, come out. 
calls to us and says, follow me. This is not a suggestion. This is not a desperate request. Please follow me. This is the summons of the king. The voice of the creator and sustainer of the universe. The one that upholds all things by his powerful word. Saying, follow me. Who summons us to life and changes us forever. Transforms us. In fact, Jesus promises Peter and Andrew, I will make you become. Let those words resonate in your soul right now. Because I think there are many of us here today that desperately need to hear those words of Jesus. I will make you become. See, the religions of our world say, make yourself something. Jesus says, I will make you. The self-help industry says, make yourself something. Jesus says, I will make you. Every single day when we stare in the mirror and that voice of temptation comes in and says, make yourself something today, Jesus says, I will make you. That restless pursuit for meaning, that restless pursuit for identity, that restless pursuit for purpose in our life through jobs, through schooling, through achievements, through romantic relationships, they all say, make yourself something. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Get caught in the nets of my transforming grace and I will make you. I will make you. Third and finally, the call of Jesus is demanding. Now, there is no way to get around this this morning. And I don't particularly care to. The call of Jesus is a demanding call. Demanding. These first disciples are not just being asked to follow Jesus, but to give him ultimate priority over two extremely significant facets of their lives, work and family. Think about this. The two things that, they would, that would have given them uh, purpose and identity and meaning in their lives, Jesus is asking them to leave behind. Now, for most of us in the West, we're already accustomed to this idea of moving away from our family of origin for school or work or other opportunities. The idea of prioritizing Jesus over family for some of us isn't really that crazy. But where it may hurt today is that Jesus demands priority over work, priority over those hours, priority over that budget, priority over those taxes, which you are right now in the midst of temptation to compromise on. Follow Jesus in your taxes. Uh, priority over your overtime. Priority, priority over every effort in our workplace. That's where it begins to sting for us. For others, depending on your cultural upbringing, the snag may be family. But here's the point. Here's the point. The call is drastic. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your cultural background, Jesus calls these fishermen to look away from the things that bring security and to look away from the things that bring identity, all the things that make them them, so that they can discover a greater security and a greater identity following Jesus. In the late 40s, early 50s, the Simus family got into the floor covering business in Sacramento. 
And my grandpa and his brothers, they built something that still exists to this day. It's like barreling towards a century long. In the 70s, uh, my dad joined. And then 30 years later, yours truly joined the family business. And this was family. This was security. And as strange as it sounds to wrap up identity in floor covering and destiny in floor covering, this was my destiny. There was a sense of pride driving those trucks around with the family name on the side. Like this is, this was something that was built. This was an industry where our name meant something until God did this sort of disruptive thing and called Michelle and I away to move overseas and help a, a church plant in London. And with that call came a call to leave our family, to leave our home, to leave our jobs, to leave private health insurance, appreciate it. Um, we pared down from having a house, two vehicles, a home full of furniture, and we trimmed down to a few suitcases. Now you're, you're supposed to have a, an estate sale after you die. <laughs> we, we had estate sales in our 20s. And it all had to go. Make an offer, it's, it's, it's all gotta go. But after about a year, things didn't go as planned. Uh, we faced challenges, we faced disappointment, we faced relational conflict in ministry, we, lay, we, we faced uh, financial insecurity, we faced a horrible miscarriage, we faced demonic attack upon our children. And then on top of this, the UK border agency started working through my paperwork, found a, a discrepancy very early on in the process, and took my tier two skilled workers, minister of religion visa, and downgraded it to a tier five temporary visa, which essentially uh, was up in just a couple months. And essentially what was being said was get out. And so we came back to the States, we came back to this church actually, uh, with the feelings of failure, we came back with the feelings of disappointment, with, with at, the, at the time seemed like nothing to show for it. We came back with those same suitcases. And people would ask us all the time, do you regret it? Do you regret it at all? And I, I can say honestly, despite the feelings of failure, despite the frustration, despite some of the confusion that was involved in that time, I was able to say then and even to this day, with absolute honesty, not one bit. Not one bit. And here's why. We won't ever have a legitimate reason regretting risking it all to follow Jesus Christ. We will never have a legitimate reason to regret risk for the kingdom of God. It may cost us our comforts. It may cost us our financial dreams. It may cost us our friendships and our jobs. And for some of us, it may even cost you your life. But it will always be worth it. And here's why because Jesus is always worth it. And the path of discipleship is a path of being with Jesus. And life with Christ is better than life. To be a disciple means accepting his demands up front. See, typically this is how we treat, especially in the 21st century, this is how we treat commitment. It sounds like this, I'll stick with it as long as I'm in agreement with the way things are going. 
as long as I feel that the payoff is worth it, as long as it's not too hard, as long as it's not gonna cost me too much, as long as it's not demanding or too demanding. Yet Jesus' very simple call demands a very simple answer. Yes. Now the disciple will fumble. The disciple will fail. We will flounder in our faith. Peter is a perfect example of this yet we give them our yes in advance. To be a disciple, to follow Jesus, means that we are giving our yes to Christ in advance, in trust that he knows best and that he is taking us somewhere important. See, most of us learn from a very early age that there are essentially two, and I don't know if there's other than two ways, to get into a swimming pool. There is the slow and agonizing and painful way of dipping your toe that at worst will cause you misery to linger in, on the stairs and, uh, and, and perhaps maybe even back out and walk away. And then there is jumping in. Jesus' call to follow him is not a call to dip your toe. Can I say that again? Following Jesus is not a call to dip your toe in the kingdom of God. Can I be honest with you guys? Some of y'all are dipping your toe in the kingdom of God. I heard it said once, seeking the kingdom of God second is the most miserable existence around. Dipping your toe means that you give some to the kingdom of God and keep some for yourself, which by definition means that you're divided. And what we find, just like that cheesy illustration of the pool, a divided self is a miserable self. Following Jesus means being all in. Now, there's a story that's been passed down throughout history uh, that under the medieval rule of Charles the Great, a huge number of soldiers were baptized into the church. But there's a backstory to this. And the backstory is that in order for these soldiers to go out to war, particularly to join the Crusades, they were required to be baptized to show their allegiance to Jesus and the church and therefore the state. So a number of soldiers would go down into these rivers in mass, in lines, and take the plunge. But what was interesting was that as they would go down into the water, many of them would actually hold out their right hand with their sword in their hand so that the sword wouldn't go under the water. And here was the statement that was being made. The statement was, all of me is yours except the sword and how I wield it. This is yours, God. This is mine. I trust you with this over here, but what I do with this, that's up to me. And if we were to be honest, the same is true for us today. We wouldn't say it with our lips. But we live into this mentality on a daily basis. We hold out our passions. We hold out our wills. We hold out our money. We hold out our sexuality. We hold out our relationships. We hold out our time. We hold out our control. We say, this is yours, and this, this is mine. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. Did they tell you about that in Christianity? I hope they did. 
You got to die in order to live? Okay, anyways. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit, I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. When Jesus says, follow me, what Jesus is saying is give it all to me. Trust it all to me. No half measures will do. But here's the question that I hope you're asking today. And the question is, why? Did you make it? Well, you made it, so apparently the, <laughs> the directions worked. All right, so the question that we need to be considering, I hope you're considering, especially if you are a skeptic of the faith or you are checking the things of Christianity out, and the question is why? Scripture's not holding any punches here. This is demanding everything about you. Not a little bit, all of you. So you should be asking, why? Why should we give Christ our all? There's a hymn that we're actually going to be singing in just a moment that reflects upon the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Prince of Glory gave it all for us. And, and he begins to recount the blood of Jesus Christ, how sorrows and joy mixed, and how Christ has redeemed us, and all that Jesus has done. And then he comes to the conclusion. And the hymnist concludes with this. We're the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Why should we give Christ our all? In light of love so amazing and a love so divine, the only fitting response is to offer him our all. And the way I wanna challenge you today is to survey the cross. Don't take my word for it. Don't be just caught up in this moment. Survey the cross, because that is where you will find the motivation. Receive the divine and sacrificial love. Hear his voice of uh, transforming grace. Drop the nets and follow him with all you've got. In the words of the writer of Hebrews, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' words are coming to you today. Follow me, drop the nets, go all in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for Christ.